Lord, we thank you that we can look at your word. I pray, God, you'd give me strength. I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to be changed corporately, Lord, as we look at your word. I pray you'd change our affections. Lord, I, I pray today you would be glorified and honored. In my weakness, I pray you'd be my strength. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'm going to try to stand today a little bit. I can put a little bit of weight on here. I, uh, one of the, uh, I've been instructed to try to get more blood pumping through my leg. When you don't put it down, you, feel, you get a little lightheaded. And so if I sit down and stand up, that's normal. If I lay down, that's not normal. <laughs> so <laughs> come check on me if I lay down. But if I sit down and stand back up, that's to be expected. Okay, open your Bible, if you would, to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. I pray this morning that um, we would have, you know, God's grace to see how to look at our life. I want to look at a passage. It's one of my favorite passages. It's one we've looked at several times over the years. It's one we're going to look at a little different than we have before this morning. And as we consider moving into another year, here's the, where I want to go with this. Four questions, four questions I pray would lead to a healthy consideration of our lives. Four questions. Looking at Paul and what he says in Philippians chapter 3, Jerry read verses 1 through 11. I'm going to read verses 7 through verse 14 of chapter 3. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus had made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. In Philippians, Paul is writing to the church at Philippi. He's writing this from prison. I want you to consider that because, you know, you could make a claim, well, that's all fine and good for him to write these things. He's this pastor who's experiencing all of this advantage. Well, that's not true. He's in jail. And as we just read, he's lost all things because of considering it loss. Here's a man that is very broken, a man that is very troubled by outward circumstances, yet in his reality, he writes these words. In Philippians 
the common theme, you know, joy is mentioned over and over. But if you go a little further with that and you say, okay, why is, why is joy such a theme? It's because of Christ. In Philippians 1.21, I really believe is the key to the whole letter. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's why he mentions in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So, so in the backdrop of everything that we look at in Philippians, remember those two realities, Christ in Paul, changing his perspective, and now Paul sharing his testimony. And as he shares his testimony, think about it with me. Four questions we can consider as we look at Paul's reality. The first question, what do you value? What do you value? I want you to think about it this morning. If there was a... Uh, I remember at the last church I served at, it was a large church, and they had a really large budget, and they had problems in the past with accounting, years in the past, and so they'd bring in a lot of accountants, and accountants would come in yearly to check the books, and they wanted to be above board every way possible because of the doubt that was in people's minds with the past leadership that had been there. And they came in, and they checked everything, I want you to think about it. If you had people really seek to help you analyze your heart, your loves, your motives, your goals, what would they come up with? I mean, with God's guidance and discernment, what would they assess you valuing the most in your life? That's not something often we're quick to want to answer. And it's something we need God's aid in because, you know, we're not quick to usually admit things that are not where they need to be. Often if people said, what is your greatest value? People are very unlikely to say, you know what? I value money more than my own kids. I value pleasure more than anything of God. I value my hobbies more than I even would want to go to my kids' games. I mean, you see what I'm saying? Those are just not really like the most honest. I mean, they're honest answers, but usually not the most, not, not usually what you hear. But I want you to think, what is it you value? What does it value? Paul says some things here about what he values. In verse 7, he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Whatever gain I had, what I once esteemed as of great value, I now count it in the negative. I count it as a loss for the sake of Christ. I want you to listen to this passage because uh, Jesus in Matthew says something about what we value. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. What happens in Philippians is like an illustration of what Jesus says in Matthew. Paul goes from thinking he had the greatest treasure 
to realizing he had no treasure at all. And once discovering the greatest treasure, he gave up everything he once valued as treasure in order to keep the greater treasure. That's what's happening here. I, um, Paul says, what I looked at as gain, I count as loss. I, it was no longer important. That was not in planned right there. Probably, oh no, the pastor's falling. No, I didn't fall. It's just the microphone. The, uh, in Acts chapter 27, I think there's an illustration of this. He says, since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now, what's going on there? They're on a boat. The boat's having trouble. All of a sudden, the things they valued enough to bring on the boat weren't that important. Why? Because their life was more important than what they brought on the boat. You see what happened? They, 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 they had brought, they had thought great, you know, great esteem of these things, you know. You go on a trip and you take your valuables, right? But if your life's at stake, the valuables no longer are the valuables, right? You get rid of them. Now, I want you to think about something here. Salvation in Christ is similar. When God opens our eyes to the things of Jesus, our value systems change. What we once valued the most, the price tag changes. I had a professor one time who said, in God's economy, the price tags have changed. What was once the most expensive things now are the cheapest. What was once the cheapest things in the store now are the most pricey. Why? Because the Holy Spirit has made us new creations in Christ. And now we see things from a different perspective. What do you value? What you value is a window to your heart. What you value is indicative of the reality of whether or not the Spirit of God has given you a true understanding of God's economy. And this is what Paul is saying. He's saying, look, I changed what I valued. And what did he value? In the context of what he's speaking about, it's his religious pedigree. He was a religious guy. Go back, and Jerry read it. Chapter 3, 1 through 6. You see, the key to understanding verses 3, 1 through 6 is verse 3. Look at verse 3. In, in, in Philippians 3, 1 through 3, in the third verse there, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus... And put what? No confidence in the flesh. Before Christ, Paul had confidence in the flesh. Post-salvation, what did he do? He gloried in Christ and had no confidence in the flesh. Which one are you today? That's the mark of whether or not you're a believer in Christ. Do you put more stock in your flesh, in, in who you are, 
and what you bring to the table and, 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 and being a good person. I mean, you know, there's a sense of like a self-confidence that can be healthy that's in Christ Jesus and, and a perspective of life that sees things through a biblical perspective, but there's a lot of self-confidence that's not of godliness. It's, 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 it's a confidence in you. It's a confidence in what you've done. It's a confidence in how hard you've worked. It's a confidence in the fact that you do these religious things. It's a confidence in, you know what? I did help that person out on the side of the road. I'm, not, I'm that kind of person. I can't tell you how many times. I, it's sad to me. I would say 95 out of 100 people I talk to what gives you confidence if you die or go into heaven? I try to be good people. But, but wait a minute. And then I, and I'll say something like this. I'll say, but why did Jesus come to die then? Why did he come to die? Because if your goodness is meritorious before God, like I can merit it, I can earn it, then why did Jesus come to die a cruel death on a cross? And often they'll say, oh, I believe in the cross. Really? Because when you are pressed on it, your first response doesn't go to the cross, it goes to what you've done. That's sort of what's happening here. Paul's saying if anybody in any place could have confidence in the flesh, it's me. And he gives the reasons why in verse 4 through 6. I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And, and what he does here, I was reading one commentary. He deals with it like this. He says, look, if anyone's going to do it on the basis of ritual, I was circumcised on the eighth day. If anybody wants to do it based off of the right race, I was of the people of Israel. If anybody wants to do it by the right rank, I was of the tribe of Benjamin. If anybody wants to base it on tradition, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. If anyone wants to argue and, and really deal with the details of religion, I was a Pharisee according to the law. If anybody wants to see sincerity, I had zeal and I was a persecutor of the church. And if anybody wants to see legalistic righteousness, I was blameless according to the law. That was his backdrop. But something changed. Where he once was confident in the flesh, now he had his eyes open to the reality that whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I... Um, was a business major and, and earned a business degree before I went to seminary. And um, I, I, uh, I remember uh, accounting was not my strength. I remember one time I walked into Dr. Janke's class at Bryan College and I was late and he gave me my test. And I looked at him and I was in front of the class and my buddies were in the back and I said, Dr. Janke, am I supposed to double this score? <laughs> it was low enough to double. It was like a 46, and uh, accounting wasn't my strength, but she learned about credits and debits and accounting. You learn about ledger sheets. You learn about assets, 
And again, this is what Paul's saying. He's saying, look, whatever gain I had, now it's changed columns. Now it's gone to the other side of the ledger. It's a different deal. I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. I count everything as loss because it's a surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Can you relate to him? He says, you know, now that Christ has worked in me, I understand the worth of Christ. And he uses that term, surpassing worth. It's one word in the Greek, and it means super, super excellency, the super excellency of Christ. And he says, for his sake, it's not only that he counted and considered them as loss, he actually had suffered the loss of all things. You remember in uh, 2 Corinthians, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. Night and day as a drift at sea on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, danger from own people, dangers from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. You, you hear a lot about ministers taking sabbaticals. He needed a sabbatical. If anybody needed one that never got one, it was Paul, right? And what, what, is, what is going on here? In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, on and on and on. And you could look at him and say, oh, bless your heart, the apostle Paul, I'm so sorry. He'd say, I counted it loss. I counted it loss. Now think about it. Why would he endure these things? And why could he find joy in these things? Because he, in losing the things that he once valued, found the greatest treasure. And finding the greatest treasure, it put it all in perspective He'd suffered the loss of all things. He count them as rubbish. It literally means dung in order that I may gain Christ. You know, this morning, what about you? What do you value? It could be that you, you really do. You value self-righteous religious achievements. Some people are really impressed with their activity in church. Some people take pride in the fact that they are the ones that step up when no one else does. It, it, it actually isn't a mark of service. It's actually a way of vindicating their own ability to be the one always to help. And a lot of times they'll look down on the people that don't do it because they see themselves as better. They see themselves as more willing. They see themselves as more involved. And in the backdrop of all the activity, as great as it looks on the veneer of the surface, is a heartbeat that does what they do in order to earn the favor of God. And Paul says, no, nah, God opened my eyes. It wasn't about my goodness and my self-vindication coming through law-keeping. It was about God opening my eyes to my need of Christ. And this is what he says. You know, it could be you value other things, your career, your position, your accomplishments, your portfolio. I'll never forget it. I, it it's sometimes you can see things in others that help you see yourself better. Isn't that weird? We, we're, we're usually the last to see the reality about ourselves. But, buddy, I can flat tell you what I think you're doing, Right? We're self-deceived. I remember being with a friend one time, and, man, I hadn't been around him that much. He was an acquaintance, really, and he, he talked, all he talked about was his portfolio, his financial. I mean, we were on a flight, and the moment we landed, he was checking the market. I was like, wow. I mean, we had, we had been down literally in seconds, and he was checking the market. Oh, no, the, 
the Dow, the NASDAQ. Uh, it, it was like, it was just, it was interesting. And again, I say that not to throw him under the bus, but to say often we don't even realize that the way we act and what we pursue is indicative of what we value. I mean, what do you value? You know, it could be the near application here is to say, okay, you know, am I valuing my own self-righteousness over my need of Christ's substitutionary sacrifice? But then you get into all these other things. It could be as we go into 2024, if you're honest with yourself, what you value are the wrong things. What you put stock in is the wrong things. It could be that you value your kids' accomplishments more than anything in life. You hear about that growing up, but you get older, and you realize some people literally live their life through what their kids do. And they'll tell you about it every time they do something. And, and you go, okay, what is it? What is it that drives you? What is your longing? What is your heart? And here Paul is saying, look, you count it all rubbish that I may gain Christ. But not only, what do you value? It goes further. These, all, these questions all relate to one thing. Where is your righteousness? Where is your righteousness? Is your righteousness something that you earn? Is your righteousness something that you perform? Or can you relate to Paul and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law? But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. This is one of the greatest verses that illustrates the need of the gospel. We can't earn our way to God. And, and we read passage after passage, and Paul says, now that God's opened my eyes, I, I once would consider myself blameless, <laughs> But now I see the futility of thinking I could earn my way to God and be self-righteous, that I could be righteous because of law-keeping. It goes back to, is the law a ladder or is the law a tutor? Remember, Galatians says the law is a tutor that takes us by the hand and leads us to Christ. Why? Because when we go to the law, we find out we can't do what the law demands. I've told you before, but when I was a student pastor, I had a, a junior, well, they call it mid-school in Albuquerque, but I had a mid-school class. I love those kids. I think about faces right now, the ones getting in trouble right now. I can see them in my mind. I could see, there's this one kid named Drew. I loved him to death, and that little turkey would get in trouble the moment I'd walk out of the room. And I remember one night saying, all right, listen, I got to go out here and do something. I want y'all to do this, this, and this. Drew, you listening to me? He looked at me like, you know, all that. I, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. I walk out of the room, and I just stop, and I listen. And everything I told them not to do, they broke it within four seconds. That, that's exactly the nature of humanity. Whatever the law demands, we revolt against. And what does it reveal? It reveals the sin within us. And you remember the predicament is, is like James says, whoever breaks the law in only one point is guilty of breaking the entirety of the law. So if you approach the law as your means of self-justification, Paul always would say, okay, keep the whole law then. Do it. That's the standard? Then keep all of it. 
Don't stop at one, keep all of them. And so what does he say here? He says, I don't want a righteousness of my own derived from the law. Passage after passage in the Old Testament, they have all turned aside together. They have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. It's hard to earn your righteousness before God when we read the reality of Psalm 14, 3. Psalm 133, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Over and over and over, passage after passage, as you go through the scripture, you see the same message over and over, that, that what? That we can't establish our own righteousness. That's why when we read Titus 3, 5, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. I, I, I think the passage for me personally that points this out vivid, vividly is, is when Jesus says about the Pharisees, the very group that Paul had said, look at my resume, and Jesus says it like this. Jesus says, um, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. I, I just can't imagine, you know, those that God was revealing this to you know, sometimes it gets a lot worse before it gets better. And before their eyes are open to see the reality of who he is, they think, oh, no, I'll never outdo the Pharisees. If you went to Israel today and you went to the Western Wall, you know, there, why is the Western Wall? Why are they praying at the Wailing Wall? Because that in there is the only, that's the last place that's the closest to the Holy of Holies that they can find. And there is that wall, and there they go. And if you went into that area, you would watch these people in their garb. You would watch the dedication. You would watch their sincerity. You would watch all of these activities and to think, wait a minute, if I'm going to enter the kingdom of God, I've got to be even better than them. And his point is, no one is righteous, no, not one. And if you're going to experience righteousness, it has to be the righteousness of the king. It's not your own righteousness. And that's the message of the gospel revealed to us. That is why, um, that, that is the law contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. And then he turns around and says, but the scripture imprisoned, everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. I love that. Look at Isaiah 53, 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. Now, here it is. Here it is. Shall the what? Righteous one do what? My servant make many to be accounted righteous. There's the gospel. There is Pauline theology in a verse in the Old Testament right there. Why? Because we are unrighteous, and what do we need? We need the one who is righteous to die in our place. 
We need one who is righteous to fulfill the law perfectly in our place. And now, as sinners, as enemies of God, our hope is not in ourself and our law-keeping. By grace, through faith, we depend on the righteous one, and he accounts us as righteous. Amen? Where's your righteousness today? Again, I was reading a paraphrase of this. The Amplified, for Christ is the end of the law, the limit at which it ceases to be, for the law leads up to him who is the fulfillment of its types, and in him the purpose which it was designed to accomplish is fulfilled. That is, the purpose of the law is fulfilled in him as the means of righteousness, a right relationship to God for everyone who trusts in and adheres to and relies on him. Where's the basis of your righteousness found this morning? The question's not, do you attend church? The question's not, do you study your Bible? The question's not, are you good church people? The question is, where is your righteousness found? Is it found in accordance to the law, or is it on the basis of faith because of the righteous one? And Paul says, I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but a righteousness that he provides. I love the hymn, Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. And I've got good news for you today. If you see yourself broken, if you see yourself unable, the beauty of the gospel is that this is a message of hope, and it's a righteousness that comes on the basis of faith. And when you put your hope and your trust in Jesus Christ, the Bible promises that your account is credited with his righteousness, your negative balance. God treats those who are not righteous as if they were because of the perfect righteousness of Christ. That's the hope of the gospel. Thirdly, what do you long for? What do you value, number one? Where is your righteousness, number two? But what do you long for? Again, these all relate. Paul continues. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. I think when you read this, you go, wow, I mean, he, he, he loves Jesus. It's like he's, he, he's, he's, he's sharing his heart. I want to know him. I want to know him. He's in prison. Isn't it interesting that, uh, I mean, it would have made sense to me if he'd have given the theological grounding of verse 1 through 10 and said that he may get me out of this prison. You know, name it, claim it, whatever you want to, you know, come up with any kind of thing you can say. Hear me out. His focus and his love is so seen in his desire for Christ that it's his secondary circumstances fall in the backdrop. 
Why? Because you're, you're seeing what he loves. You're seeing what he longs for in this prison when circumstances are not what he had desired. He says, oh, but what I used to value, I now count as loss. I want to know Christ for the sake of knowing him, knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, counting all things but rubbish. And he says that I may know him in the power of his resurrection. Wow, you know, um, for Paul, righteousness was not just positional. What does that mean? It means like mysteriously in a way you can't see it. If you've believed in Christ, when God the Father looks at you, he sees the righteousness of his son that covers you. He sees you as righteous positionally. And that, isn't that a beautiful truth? But you know what? It's, there's not just positional righteousness in the Bible. We're called to live righteous. There's a practical righteousness. We're called to live righteously, right? Now, now but for Paul... It wasn't just that Christ was the basis of his positional righteousness. He was the hope of his practical righteousness. You say, what do you mean? You remember in Galatians, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, not I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Now think about it. What is he saying there? He's saying... Christ lives in me not only as the basis of how I'm accepted before God, but Christ now lives in me, enabling me to live righteously as a believer. You see, see both sides? It's like he's saying that I may know him. And Paul is basically here saying, I want to know and experience the power of the resurrection of Christ. When I thought about knowing Christ... You know what it reminded me of? And I love how sometimes uh, I love when you do this. You'll come out of Sunday school and you'll say, man, it's unbelievable what you just said, how it relates to Sunday school. And, and I think it's not only how the Spirit of God works in unique ways like that, but I think it's just one of the overlapping examples of how God's Word interprets God's Word. And there's all these ways it overlaps. It's, it's amazing. And, and I thought, you know what I thought about? John saying, that which was from the beginning, that which we have seen and we have heard concerning the word of life, the eternal life was with the Father, made manifest. And then he says, and we write these things to you because we want you to experience fellowship. Fellowship? Wait a minute. That's the apostle John. Now think about it. Paul... He's not just talking about the basic theology that Christ is our righteousness. He's saying, now in Christ, I have fellowship with him. I know him. And the greatest longing of my heart is to know him more. How is that possible? Because of the fellowship that we have with God the Father through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that rich? And he says, I want to know him. And the power of his resurrection, I, I tell you, I, it, this may sound simple, but where do you feel dead? Where do you feel unable? Maybe you're today and you're going through a tough spot in marriage, and you're like, I, I, don't, I don't know how to love my wife as Christ loved the church. I want to know him in the power of his resurrection. 
Where, where is there need for a resurrection where there's complete death, right? And, I mean, done. But, but Christ enables, but you don't know the brother that I got in my life. You don't know this person that I work with. They drive me crazy, and they're impossible, and they're, and they're, and they're mean, and they're sarcastic. I, I can't love them as Christ calls me to love them. But what do you need? I need to experience the power of his resurrection. I need a practical display of the life of Christ in my weakness. Now think about it. You, you fill the, the gaps in where you're worried, where you're helpless, where you're hopeless, where you're unable. The beauty of the reality of Christ is that he affects every place where we are weak. And Paul says, I want to know him. I want to know him in the power of his resurrection. And then he says something. And may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. It's amazing to me how the longer you read scripture, I felt like in some ways I never understood this until this sermon. It just hit me. And I was like, I've misunderstood that all these years. You know, he says, he says, and may share his sufferings. But, but do you realize that word share? Some of you have it in your translations. It actually says, and the fellowship of his sufferings. The fellowship. And I've, I've never really grasped that. And it was almost like it just became clear, and it seemed so simple. The fellowship. The fellowship that we grow. And, and here was the quote that got me out of a commentary. The deepest moments of spiritual fellowship with the living Christ are at times of intense suffering. Suffering drives believers to him. They find in him a merciful high priest, a faithful friend who feels their pain, and a sympathetic companion who faced all the trials and temptations that they face. He is thus uniquely qualified to help them in their weakness and infirmities. And Paul says, I want to fellowship through suffering with him. There was an old preacher that uh, now is in heaven. He, he impacted a lot of people. And, and, and I know in Mississippi, there was a it's, it's, it's interesting because my dad knew him and my stepdad, Tom, he talks about Manly Beasley. Manly Beasley was a pastor, a revivalist in the South. And Manly came to our church when I was a little kid and I was probably Will's age. And, and Manly got up one time and he was talking about trials and suffering. I tell you, sometimes you, you, you I remember, I, I say this often, but a lot of people think, you know, it's hopeless for young kids to be in a worship service. And I think that's hogwash. Because I remember the Spirit of God working in my heart at, at eight years old, nine years old, 10, I mean, giving me a heart to follow Jesus. And, and I remember being impacted by this story that I heard around Will's age. And Manly went into a hospital room, and the lady said, Brother Manly, will you pray that God would heal me? I've been in this hospital bed for a long time. And uh, Manly looked at the woman. He said, let me ask you a question. Can you tell me how you've grown closer to Jesus in your sickness? And she started having tears running down her face. And she says, I've never had sweeter fellowship with Christ than as I've been here in this hospital room. And Brother Manley looked at the woman and said, now you sure you want me to pray for your healing? The fellowship of his sufferings. 
Paul had come to understand that Christ ministered to him in weakness, and in his weakness, he drove him to the end of himself. He drove him to the end of himself. And in his weakness and in his trial and in his inconveniences and in all the things he didn't want it to go a certain way, he began to realize that the valuable treasure, the one he never would have considered gained, and now he looked at it as the supreme excellency of all value, was the one who was growing him and ministering to him in his trial. He says, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. And he keeps going through here. He says that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is a tough one. And I'll tell you, it's tough because there's two possible ways to go with this, and they're both true. Uh, it could be he's speaking about the future resurrection. Um, one man says the word somehow probably suggests that Paul is uncertain as to the timing and the circumstances of when this will happen. Might it come to him in his lifetime so he receives a transformed resurrection body? without passing through death? Or will he die and then rise from the dead? Either way, somehow he will attain the resurrection of the dead. That's very possible. But I tell you, there's another translation. It, it, there's a lot of scholars that believe that. There, there's guys like uh, Warren Wiersbe, uh, Kenneth Wiest. Uh, you heard about Vines, Vines Dictionary of Words. Vines believes in the spiritual resurrection. And here's what they see. They see that, that what Paul's doing here, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. And then they take it literally that I may be the living out from amongst the dead. And they believe that what he's, Paul saying is, he's saying, I want to know Christ so deeply that I want his life to impact mine out from amongst deadness of where he lives. He's writing in a prison. Think about all those guards. Think about all those other prisoners. I told you years ago, dad told me about, he was pastoring in uh, Mississippi and, uh, he was at a tough place, and God really used it in his life, but at the time, he wasn't seeing the fruit of it. He was just seeing the frustration in it, but it, God used it in his testimony. But he said he was really just distraught. And one afternoon, there wasn't anything in Lexington, Mississippi. We had to drive like an hour to go to Jackson to go to McDonald's or something. There was a truck stop. And, and one day, we were accounted for, me and my sister and him and mom went driving, and they were driving through the country, and and, and there's kudzu everywhere in Mississippi. That stuff's crazy, isn't it? Kudzu, you know, kudzu grows on buildings, on, on fences, on uh, small pets and small children. It grows everywhere. And it's pretty gross. And uh, you'll see fields with it everywhere. And uh, he said one day they were driving, and uh, Mom was like, stop the car. Look, 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 look. And she was like, look out there in the middle of that field with all that kudzu. She's like, what are you? He goes, what are you talking about? And she goes, look in the middle. And there was a dogwood tree in the middle of all that kudzu. And she's like, Wayne, that, that's what God wants us to be here. He wants to be like that dogwood tree in the midst of all that kudzu. And you know, whether Paul's speaking of a physical resurrection or a spiritual resurrection, I can tell you this, both realities are true here. Paul wanted 
I feel like sometimes we lose sight, you know? We, we, we sing the songs, we, 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 we affirm the truth, but sometimes we just don't go practical enough. Where are you in need of Christ's grace and his strength where you're completely unable? Paul here would say, oh, if you could only know. Knowing him and walking with him, the power of his resurrection the fellowship of his sufferings, and the final question this morning. The final question, what are you looking towards? What are you looking towards? And we'll go through this quick. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus made me his own. Remember we were talking about adoption. Isn't that fun to think about how that relates? Christ Jesus made me his own. He adopted me. He not only declared me in right, God not only declared me in right standing, but because of Christ, he came and put his arm around me. I'm his. I'm his own. He's not out to get me. He cares for me deeply. He's sanctifying me. He's conforming me to his image according to his will. He says, brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own. But the one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Wow. Um, what, what do you look towards? I want you to think about it. What are you looking towards? It's easy, isn't it, to get so close-minded because of all the busyness of life? I get, I'm guilty of that more than anybody. It's hard for me to see past the ball games we got next week at the retcom. You need to come watch me coach on a scooter, too. I'm pretty, <laughs> it's pretty impressive. The, uh, but but I, I, I got this, got this, and then we got this, and then we got this, and then we got this, and then March comes, and we got this, and then April comes, and I'm going to Romania, and then this comes, and this comes, and this comes, and this comes. Some people live, and they never get out of that. One thing to the next. Groceries, dinner, and I get it. That's part of living. That's not, you can't escape that reality. But in the midst of it, what are you ultimately looking towards? And Paul had his eye on the prize. He had his eye on the prize. Uh, it's been fun. The boys, Luke and Andrew run, and it's been fun, you know, watching not only their training and being a part of just the entire cross country and track program and watching all of that and being reminded, I never ran, I did run competitive, but it was just a horrible program I was in. I don't remember practice being hard at track. <laughs> That's probably why we weren't good. But, uh, but I do remember I was in the 200 race at sixth grade. I told you this before, but it's the, it's the picture in my mind when I read this. And it was like about 12 kids. I don't know how many kids. There's too many, I think, for all the lanes. And uh, they didn't care. It was Brainerd Baptist track program. And um, we came out of the thing, you know, I'm sprinting. It's 200 yards, so you got 200. You got to go the whole way. It's just awful. And uh, I'm coming out, and immediately, like, this kid cut off a kid, and he fell, and a kid screaming, busted his knee. And it's just like people are wiping out, and they're all falling, but they don't stop the race. And I'm like, oh, boy, I'm up, and I got a shot. And I'll never forget it. There's like four or five of us left. And there's all this carnage behind us. 
And, and, and y'all remember someone in your school, that, your friend's mom that yelled too much at games? Um, there was this lady, my friend Robbie, his mom was Wanda. And Wanda, I, I'll never forget it. She's like, come on, Stephen. She was fired up. And I, and I remember, like, you take that, you know, you're coming around that 200 and you get that backstretch and you're looking towards the tape. And it was like, I mean, I could hear chariots of fire in my mind. And I was like, I was so fired up. I could just see it happening. And it's anticlimactic because I didn't win. <laughs> but I did better than I usually did. But, but I was running with clear purpose. I was looking at the finish line. I was running as hard as I could, and, and I was totally zoned in. But I, I wonder today, you know, as we start 2024 tomorrow, I wonder if when you look at this, if you can even relate. Christian, have you lost sight of the finish line? You know, I was reading J.C. Ryle, and his writings are so pointed and powerful, and, and, and he was talking about Christmas, but I want to be honest with you. You're not guaranteed to see next New Year's Eve. This may be the last one for you. I don't care how old you are, how old you are. We're not guaranteed to see 2025. We're not guaranteed to see 2024. And I pray that we wouldn't just ponder these things theoretically, but we would see the urgency in them. Paul's saying here, not that I've already obtained or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus made me his own and he keeps going, I do not consider that I've made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward, he's using that imagery of a runner, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. There's so much to unpack there. And what we're doing today is just considering the overarching verses but basically his idea is, is like, I am pursuing Christ. I'm pursuing heaven. I'm pursuing the glory of Jesus. I'm pursuing my future glorification. I'm pursuing all the promises of God that are yes in Jesus Christ as it relates to everything he says will happen tomorrow. So this morning, where are you at? What do you value? Where is your righteousness? What do you long for? What are you looking towards? And if you're like me, maybe you, get, you read all these and you go, oh, dear God, oh, dear God, help me. I was thinking about it because uh, that's such a reaction I typically have when, when I hear biblical preaching and when, I, when my heart is engaged and my desire is to follow Christ and I see the, in a, the, the weaknesses and I see my temporal struggles, and I see the weaknesses of my flesh, but, and I think sometimes I can take it the wrong way and be overwhelmed and, and lose sight. Remember Matthew 19, but Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Today, you realize as we enter in the year, you can say, oh God, would you help me with what I value the most? Oh, God, will you help me to rest in your righteousness? Remember, we talked about implications of the gospel. You can be a Christian and have positional righteousness in Christ, but living out of the reality that he is your righteousness changes things. What do you long for? Oh, God, help me with my longings. 
God, will you help me, Lord? God, give me a perspective of the real future. God, help me not to waste my life. Help me to live for what matters. Help me to live for the glory of Christ eternally. How can we do that? You know, as we jump into the new year, we've all struggled before. I have. I'm a pastor and I've struggled. I feel like sometimes I heard Alistair Begg say it. He said, sometimes I feel like God called me in the pastor just so I would be in the Bible. He goes, I feel like I would be so weak and unable to even be in the Bible. I'm sort of forced to as a minister. I can relate to him. But you know what? Like as we jump in the new year, why don't we pray that God would give us strength to be in his word? Because as we're in the word, he renews our minds to these values, right? And uh, we can pray. And, and, you know, prayer, the language of prayer flows out of being in the scripture because we understand who God is. We understand our real needs. And, and then another thing is, is like we need each other, don't we? I need your encouragement. You need mine. We need one another in community. So I pray that we all take this. It could be today you're here and you're not a Christian. And, and, and what's happened in this message, because of the Holy Spirit, nothing to do with me, you're like, oh, my goodness. How in the world in 45 minutes can I go from a change of value? For the first time in my life, I have an affection or desire to follow Christ. That's the Holy Spirit. And if that's you today, share it with somebody. Tell them. Tell them. I've trusted Christ. I've trusted Christ. The things I once valued no longer as valuable as they were. Whatever it may be, let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the privilege of being with, uh, with people I love. And we, are, we have this, this unique, special opportunity to be shaped by the word of God together. And Lord, I value that. I praise you for that. I don't take that for granted. I thank you, Lord, that you saw fit that this New Year's Eve, all of us would be in this room and we would be challenged by what Paul writes because of the Holy Spirit who led him to write it. I pray, Lord, that it would eternally change us. And I pray that we would not take our lives for granted. I pray we would just take time, meditate on what this, this passage is. It's so rich and there's so many verses that we've run through. I pray, though, that your spirit would do a work. And God, even as I remember visible like pictures in my mind of, of you working in my heart as a young man, I pray, God, you do that in the lives of these young people. I pray they'd have a heart to follow you. I pray it wouldn't be dull. I pray it wouldn't just be words. I pray it wouldn't just be a service. But I pray that they would have their values changed eternally because of a work of the Holy Spirit where they could be in complete agreement with Paul and they could say the things that I once valued, I no longer value. I pray we would see the true treasure that we would run after it with all of our heart and all of our might. And I thank you that that's only possible because of the power of your resurrection who works within us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.